0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Sound Strategic. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused unprecedented disruption to global economy as countries have attempted to limit the spread of the virus. This disruption has raised questions on how companies should respond to and manage crises in the future. So this week we're looking at the topic of political risk and the growing need of multinational companies and others to adopt a corporate foreign policy to help me explore this topic I'm joined by John Rain senior advisor for geopolitical due diligence at the IWS and Dr Nigel Gold Davis the IWS senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia as well as editor of the IWS's Strategic Survey both John and Nigel served in the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office for a number of years and have advised governments and companies on managing political risk Nigel is also the author of Tectonic Politics Global Political Risk in an Age of Transformation, a book that explores how changes in the global political economy has reordered the relationship between power, wealth, and values. So for those who aren't so familiar with the concept, perhaps we should start by explaining what we actually mean when we talk about political risk and corporate foreign policy. John, do you want to take that first?
1: Sure. Thanks, Maya. Well, foreign policy... Certainly to the non-foreign policy professional um, may seem a slightly arcane thing and indeed a, a lot of hard work. And why would you want one of those if your business is, is making money? Um I think understanding what it would be helps answer that question. And for me, there are there are three parts really to a to a corporate foreign policy. Now, first of all, to distinguish it from just commercial diplomacy, which is something that all companies do in order to win new customers and new markets. Um, It is, above all, it's about the stand that you take. There's a a very strong defining communications element to a foreign policy. Um, Secondly, a foreign policy is something um, which you hold over time as a corporate. It's not just something in response to a, a crisis or an opportunity. And because of that, it requires quite a lot of deliberation and reflection. Holding on to it, keeping it consistent, also means that there's a sort of internal communication problem, a team effort required around foreign policy. So everyone in the organisation understands where where you stand on a particular issue. It's also, lastly, it's very much to do with identifying and mitigating risks, what we call geopolitical due diligence understanding that the the risk that you're on a foreign policy in this sense gives you a really effective way of mitigating risks in advance so for me it's a it's a combination of those three things and and even though that may seem like the kind of thing that only governments can do uh, in practice it is something that can be integrated into some of the best practices of corporates without too much additional effort. But it does require that, that particular focus and mindset.
0: Nigel, is this a concept that only applies to Western companies? Or is it a concept that has been applied elsewhere in the world as well?
2: I would say that one of the most uh, striking and dramatic changes in international politics of the past 30 40 years is the rise and spread of political risks. So if you go back four decades or so, Political risk and therefore, as John says, the need to think about and conduct a corporate foreign policy was something mainly confined to a small number of large Western companies, multilateral uh, multinationals, usually engaged in uh, extractive uh, industries. Today, it is something that everyone needs to worry about, not only the extractives, those companies with a big, obvious, heavy footprint in another country, uh, but across the the range of sectors, and no less important, uh, something that non Western as well as Western companies need to be concerned about. The rise of the rest, the non West, the emergence, and then the going out into the world of, in particular, uh, Asian uh, companies. Has meant that those companies encounter um, societies and political systems very different from those they are familiar with at home, uh, and in order to navigate those unfamiliar environments, they also need a corporate foreign policy. And if they don't, they make mistakes which are costly to their business.
1: I think I'd add to that, uh, my if I may, that um, you know another another driver for for this is. It's a universal challenge that all companies face to win new markets and new investment. And whether they're publicly listed or not, in order to get that market, to get that investment, they've got to be very conscious of the likes, dislikes, agendas of customers and particularly investors. And, and, you know, investment funds have been some of the most dramatic hands-on shapers of foreign policy in, in the broadest sense of, of, of large corporates over the last five years or so, I mean, and particularly in the last 18 months. It's been a striking uptick in the number of funds who have taken an activist position in annual general meetings, uh, in particular on such things as whether or not the companies they're investing in are aligned on Paris protocols, for example. So wherever you are in the world, if you're seeking access to, uh, to, to, to markets, to investment, just more customers, the thing that's driving a lot of this, driving this need for foreign policy... Is that precisely those people are now foreign policy minded. So your average customer is your, your investment fund is, and it and it's sort of taking away the, the choice that companies felt they had for many years. As Nigel said, it's very much confined to a large group of prominent kind of household names. But now everyone who's seeking those those basic necessities, enhanced global markets, and even regional markets and investment, they're being pushed towards a position where they, they have to do those things that constitute a foreign policy. You have to take a stand, communicate what you're about, have to be consistent.
0: I mean, what does this look like in practice, though? I mean, how does a company do foreign policy practically?
2: So I would say that uh, there's a second trend here, as well as the rise in political risks, the ways that states and societies can harm businesses if they take against businesses, At the same time, we've also seen a narrowing range of options for companies. In the past, uh, say again more than 30 or 40 years ago, there were ways that companies could deal with the uh, political risks that uh, arose. Going right back to imperial days, simply the use of force. We think all the way back to the East India Company, for example, but uh, other examples too of political threats to value-creating behavior, simply being coerced or suppressed. That's now illegitimate. Uh, It's it's unacceptable to do that sort of thing. Uh, Bribery, frankly, so after force, money was a way that uh, was often used to uh, quieten down or co-opt local political actors that could uh, make demands. Uh, That has become illegitimate as well. The global standards on anti-bribery, for example, are now unprecedentedly high. In addition to that, it's no longer possible for companies to say simply trust us. Uh, we know what's in you know, our interests is in your interests as well. There is much more skepticism about uh, corporate activity in general. It's much more likely to be scrutinized. So forced money and trust have become less usable as ways of dealing with politics. In their stead, what companies have to do is engage, actively with a full range of political and social actors. Uh, And that means understanding the complexities of the local environment that they work in, uh, not waiting until trouble arises before establishing relationships uh, with those uh, who might take against their uh, activities. It it involves, in fact, uh, a form of diplomacy, corporate diplomacy, which is a key element in a corporate foreign policy, understanding the actors and their agendas, and learning how to speak to them effectively. And that culture has to run right through the company.
0: And of course, we see that diplomacy enacted not just at the state or national level, but very much increasingly also at the subnational level, correct? With communities or cities uh, or even regions within a country itself in which a, a, a company might invest.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Maya. The sensitivity of... Uh, Corporates to the environment in which they work and on which they rely has grown hugely over the last couple of decades. And, you know, if you look at the record on ESG, environment, social and corporate governance, if you look at the record of those funds, it's a really strong one. I think, you know, big, big, big point to note is how successful, how outperforming ESG funds have been in the last 18 months at a time when global equities have been 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 suppressed. They're heading in the wrong direction. So I think that's absolutely part of it. I think the thing with foreign policy that's slightly different is a, it's encouraging corporates to see themselves as players in an international or kind of multi-jurisdictional community, where they, where they have the capacity to shape, and they also have a responsibility to their shareholders to speak. And this is a you know, this is a new position, a very uncomfortable one for a lot of corporates whose instincts will be uh, to have kind of beneficial neutrality. So keep distance from the politics, just come straight, make you money, and you can you can drill, manufacture, bank your way through any crisis. But the, I think the big thing has changed is that those those critical groups, your customers, your investors. They won't let you do that anymore, and and the clearest indication for you of that is the is the amount of activism that we now see in investment funds, including those like BlackRock, who, who turn around on, uh, almost on a on a on a dime their policy towards this, so taking
2: a very much more aggressive approach. Yeah, that's ab- absolutely right, and uh, and what John draws attention to is the uh, the fact that companies need to look in many directions simultaneously when they're trying to judge uh, and respond to political risks. They do not only arise from those parts of the world where the companies are doing business. Uh, very often, there are cases where the uh, the national uh, and subnational uh, governments uh, in a particular country are not protesting or complaining about uh, a company's activities. The protests, the pressure, the criticism and demands come from a company's home state, from their own civil society. Uh, Two famous examples in this respect, the first major global consumer boycott in modern times uh, of Nestle for its uh, marketing of infant formula in the third world. This is a cause that Western civil society uh, took up and forced change. More recently, in the 1990s, uh, Nike's practices uh, in uh, what were described as sweatshop conditions Uh, in Southeast Asia, provoke criticism and boycotts and so on. Again, at home, the problems for them did not arise locally, uh, but uh, in their own countries. So they have to look in many directions simultaneously and respond to uh, pressures uh, from wherever they come.
0: Absolutely. I think also part and parcel of this must be the fact that um, trade and investment is increasingly being used as a tool of foreign policy. So, um, companies themselves are, are being caught in this crossfire very often. Think particularly uh, to examples of companies that have suffered at the hands of um, lacks of Chinese investment or being cut off from Chinese investment due to uh, the originating uh, companies' governments' statements on uh, Taiwan, for example.
1: Yeah I think that's a, that's a great point mine there's definitely been a shift from a position where companies would look to their sponsoring government to assist them gaining access to markets and funds to a position where I- increasingly they're being weaponized or victimized uh, because of the the flag that they that they carry and many Corporates have tried to distance themselves from a specific national identity, but you know, in, in times of crisis, global recession, a pandemic, urgent domestic imperatives, that that flag resurfaces. So the challenge, I think, there for, for corporates is, as Nigel was saying, first of all, to, to keep engaging when when you are being targeted, weaponized, instrumentalized. Uh, d- don't be passive and don't don't rely upon the quality of your performance seeing you seeing you through. This is a real problem in a, in a heightened atmosphere of nationalism, nations first. No, not just because of uh, extreme ideological authoritarian views, but, but because so many jurisdictions now are focused on repairing the damage, economic and social, of COVID-19 and the recession.
2: Yeah, that, and that's a very important point about... Uh... Uh, the increasingly pervasive character of these risks, it's no longer an option to ignore them. If you ignore them, they will hurt you. Uh, and again, John said earlier, the traditional view was: we just keep our head down, we just do business, we make money. Uh, we're not interested in politics. That was a traditional view. Now you have, in particular in the United States, but some other countries too, uh, proactively corporate leaders taking stands on what are domestically controversial social issues. Uh, trying to take the lead. I mentioned Nike earlier with respect to the mistakes it had made in the 1990s. What has Nike done recently? It's put Colin Kopernick on its posters. Uh, it's, it's advertising. It's a, it's an extraordinary uh, development to deliberately insert themselves uh, into what's quite a sort of polarized domestic, political and social environment. But that's the, the historic shift, really, in mindset that you're getting now. Companies realize they have to be Actively uh, engaged, not just watching and responding, but taking positions. And this is profoundly unfamiliar to companies. that have never really had to do this sort of thing before.
1: That's that's absolutely so, Nigel. And then um, you know, as you you and I uh, will remember from our our former careers, the other the other side of diplomacy is the influence that you can exercise within a friendship, and that is the opposite to. Uh, megaphone diplomacy. Um, And I think for many corporates, that's uh, an attractive and an appropriate style of foreign policy, where they've built up phenomenally strong relationships with governments and countries, you know, integral to the economic success of those countries, um, learning how they use that privileged position to influence positions which governments are taking with which they may not agree themselves as corporate or which they see as damaging. I think that's, that is a form of diplomacy. It's an element of a foreign policy which, um, which many, I think, can exercise, but as Nigel was saying, have been reluctant to. Now I think um, uh, it's, it's less of a choice, this. It's more of an imperative if you were to preserve
2: positions and relationships. And not only with states, but with societies as well. Again, sometimes a state can be perfectly happy with the way you're conducting your activities. The pressures, the indignation, the consumer boycotts or disinvestment comes from uh, activist civil society seeking to impose not government regulation, but civic regulation, the power of reputation and shame to force companies to change. And it's harder to maintain those steady, stable relationships with societies than with states. And what we've seen, even in the past four or five years, is a rapid shift in the, the the political and ethical landscape around pretty key issues of culture, identity, and so on. And everyone is catching up with these. Uh, companies are learning how to, everyone is learning uh, what's considered acceptable or not acceptable, what is woken or not woke, uh, so to speak. And so it's a constant, continuous monitoring of a a shifting and quite unstable environment.
0: I mean, how flexible are companies, though, when it comes to uh, keeping up with these trends and these very shifting dynamics? Um, you've mentioned human rights, but we can also talk about the current climate crisis uh, and, of course, COVID-19. So how do, do you see any good examples of, of companies who have been flexible in, in responding to these challenges quickly uh, and agilely?
2: I, I go back in the first instance to to an example I mentioned earlier of, of Nike, uh, which is interesting. They've learned from uh, from a, a difficult experience in the past. You've had other companies. Target, I think, in the United States took a policy, for example, on transgender bathrooms. Yes, who would have thought ten or perhaps even five years ago that this would be an issue that companies would feel they need to take a stand on? All these issues about you know identity, uh, gender. Uh, and and other cultural issues of that kind. But these can be divisive uh, as well as unifying. Uh, There are some people who will boycott a company whichever position they take. But to your question, I'm not really sure there's a clearly emerging best practice. This is, again, shifting and uncertain uh, terrain for everyone. Everyone is learning how to do it, but everyone is aware also that the, the situation is constantly changing. Uh, and learning, and experimenting, and, and trying to avoid mistakes. And the key thing here, I, I think,
1: to Nigel's point of um, you know, it's, it's adapt or or perish really in the markets here is is how attuned are corporates to the younger generation who are driving this initiative. And some corporates and some countries are deliberately trying to tune into the views of their younger consumers and, and employees because they can see that that is you know, looking out as close as 10 years that will be shaping the environment in which in which they're operating. So there have been there have been some initiatives to do this some state level, some by corporates. It could be one of the things that decides whether or not in 10 years you are uh, you are fit and competitive. Uh, particularly given the demographics in play in the asian markets um, and middle eastern markets too so that's that's just one of the ways in which you know, corporates need to develop these sensors um, the other i think is uh, it in tracking trends it's it's understanding and trying where possible to influence how how some of the key governments that they work with are doing the same thing and there's just a sort of brutal element of survival here because if if you're tied to a government which is just missing it uh, and doesn't look like it's going to correct, you have to seriously consider whether that makes strategic sense. I mean, the argument is not dissimilar to the one over, over oil and hydrocarbons, is that, um, you know, and indeed bankruptcy, uh, you know, it happens very slowly and then very suddenly. So, so the, the tipping point in some of these disinvestments for boycott could be could be very sudden but frankly we've all seen it coming again you know it's plastics this inadequate approach to sustainability and the environment all these things are that they trend indicators which have to be responded to.
2: To, to to that point the oil industry is a fascinating case study because everyone there is presented with the, the common challenge of of climate change and the move towards a post-carbon age and they are taking the companies are taking different approaches to this uh, no important certainly Western player denies the problem now but they are handling it in different ways with different degrees of radicalism so to speak even as uh, they have to, to acknowledge the fact this is currently their core business so how they make that transition will and how successfully and how states and again civil society respond to that will be very important final point I'd make is that when we talk about activist civil society and the pressures it imposes uh, We're normally uh, now talking about Western civil societies. I think what will be fascinating to watch is whether we get uh, significant pressures exerted from non-Western societies uh, demanding uh, that their own companies uh, uh, conduct themselves with higher ethical uh, humanitarian and environmental standards.
0: I mean, I like that you both speak to uh, the need for companies to choose, but of course, in today's geopolitical context of great power rivalry between the U.S. and China, it's becoming increasingly difficult for companies, particularly in sensitive areas of industry like tech, um, but also, of course, uh, in in the pharmaceutical industry to uh, have an independent uh, foreign policy. How do you think that the U.S.-China rivalry has complicated corporate behavior in recent years? It,
1: it's a massive complicator, um, and it will will continue to be so. Not just for the large players on both sides, the tech giants on both sides in particular, but for everyone who feeds off them and supports them. So the, the knock-on effect to supply chain companies, to financiers, uh, is potentially huge. If we see an escalation. Tariffs and sanctions this is going to be this will be affect the, the fate the shape of the global economy uh, however de, de, one point about this is it is still it is a dispute which can be solved between governments and that may sound perverse but that should give us hope so you can you can find a way to a solution or, as we have seen, to a moderation of this conflict, because it it is still in the hands of the two most powerful states in the world and its it's government-to-government negotiation. The foreign policy challenge, I think, for companies here is, first of all, don't make it any worse. don't raise it, accidental escalation, if I can call it that. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about, um, you know, in particular, Houston Rockets, whose CEO was mightily regret his comment, cost something like 400 million pounds in lost revenues. Um, You know, these, these, these can become disproportionately aggravating to this. Um, the, The second challenge, I think, within this is, is where, where corporates find that they have influence to exercise, not to be afraid to do it judiciously. Um, so there are, there are opportunities and indeed, in some sense, responsibilities for companies to engage constructively here. But I, I entirely accept that unless that, uh, that adversarial relationship is resolved into something that looks very much more like partnering than just about every company you care to, to name. And lots of non companies, um, NGOs, uh, universities are all going to be affected by this. But I say, it's just as going back to the earlier comment that Nigel made, it's not enough actually just to be passive and hope that uh, it's resolved. There's both things not to do and there's things to do within that dispute.
2: I'll just add there's an unprecedented situation. The great era of post-war globalization was a Western-led process. During the Cold War, uh, there was hardly any uh, significant trade and investment between the West and the West's major adversary, the Soviet Union. So the political and military rivalry was not did not really hinder uh, trade and investment because there was very little to hinder. Now we're in totally different territory. Two major growing rivals, deeply uh, entwined with one another, both in respect of trade and of investment, and the extent of the uncoupling uh, of the two, of course, is something that we, we we wait to see. But it's a it's a new and deeply uh, discomforting uh, environment, I think, for for companies and their supply chains caught up in it.
1: And Mike, if I may, just add one thought here: why it's so interesting, this this adversarial relationship between China and the US over trade is that it has it has dissolved the barrier between security and business. And we've seen an expanded definition of what constitutes national security on both sides. And the Americans have well-articulated concerns over the threats which are posed to the integrity of their secure communication system by Huawei's integration into Western IT infrastructure, government infrastructure, um, the Chinese on their side have taken a very broad definition under their legislation of what constitutes hostile, threatening, and therefore security-related acts towards them. So I think that to add to Nigel's point, the why this is, is so unusual and so worrying is that it, it has enveloped trade within the definition of national security. And, and as Nigel said, trade is so big, to find it inside that agenda is is deep, deeply troubling. Um, my, my own idea of a, of a good decoupling is probably less uh, disentangling commercial and even technological relationships. Uh, it's disentangling security from trade once again, if that can be done. But you know, both sides have broadened that definition significantly.
0: Absolutely. And just to go back to the very one of the very first questions we discussed in this episode, the question of whether corporate foreign policy is a Western-applied uh, concept only, I think Chinese companies at the moment, particularly in tech, of course, the Alibabas, the Tencents, and the Huaweis of the world, are finding it very difficult to portray a neutral image, or at least an image that decouples them from the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state system. So this is absolutely, uh, I would say, a, a, a concept that, that is globally um, uh, applicable, not just uh, to Western companies and, of course, not just to tech. Um, the development of a vaccine for COVID-19, of course, uh, and concern, and questions about whether uh, health and pharmaceutics should be included within the definition of national security is equally uh, relevant at this moment in time.
1: Yeah, and certainly the, the whole the, the, the new discipline of biosecurity as a as an element of, of, of national security r- rather than as a, a scientific discipline. All of this is, is posing challenges and opportunities for governments. I mean, it's striking how um, the opportunity to several governments is looking like it's an opportunity to create jobs, to reshore. Um, you know, we've seen that uh, in Macron's approach towards French pharmaceutical companies, Trump, Trump's approach towards Kodak. Here's a, a very high profile issue on which you can be seen to be putting your own economy fast. Um against that, if there was ever a truly uh, global effort required, it's 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 on this. And pharmaceutical companies ought to be able to benefit from the max to international connectivity and coordinated international effort. So it's going to be an interesting industry to watch and will in itself just illustrate the tension between I think what politicians feel they need to do now to secure their position and what what the needs of the moment really are.
0: Just to end, let me ask you each for one piece of advice for companies operating globally uh, with regards to their corporate foreign uh, policy in an era of heightened uh, geopolitical rivalry and risk.
2: I would say Uh, The most important thing is to recognize that it's not an option to ignore these risks and that uh, an understanding of what those risks are and how to manage them needs to be integrated into the heart of corporate culture. Most companies, certainly Western ones now, have a political affairs or government affairs uh, uh, department, but that's not always listened to. That doesn't always get the seat at the table it needs. It's a sort of an, an add-on and feels detached from the rest of the organisation in many occasions. It needs to be in the bloodstream because if you get political risks wrong, they can hurt you. They really can.
1: That's what I was going to say, well, we're all diplomats now. You, to build on Nigel's point, I, I don't think the option of simply abstaining on all the big foreign policy issues is is there anymore. Uh, and the international community is no longer restricted to representatives of governments. The, the most significant non-state actors um, are now commercial powers, be they ever so grand like the, the, the tech giants, or, or be they more modest. If, if you're out there in the international arena, you're a player, and with that come responsibilities uh, and opportunities.
0: Well, thank you both so much for helping us with and giving us your insights today as to why companies need a foreign policy of their own. You've given us plenty of food for that and hopefully um, inspiration for future episodes. And thank you to our audience for listening as well. Please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions just like this. And to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and geopolitics, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. See you next time.